0: Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Art Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at artstreetpress.org. Today is March 21st, 2012, and our guest is Elisa Del Tufo. Elisa is returning for part two of our dialogue. Last time we spoke, we described in detail Elisa's work in New York City as the founder of Sanctuaries for Families, and also Connect, Communities Coordinated Against Violence, and also Elisa's work at Threshold Collaborative with its national mission to create sustainable change by building empathy and trust in local communities. And today we're going to do a deep dive into how Elisa approaches the subject of empathy in her work. Good morning, Elisa. It's great to have you back.
1: Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you again, David.
0: As an entry point for our conversation today, a fascinating aspect of your work involves how you have been exploring the connection between violence in families and communities and culture and systems, Mm -hmm. and then how people gain insight into their culture and the systems that they live in and use that to create change. Mm -hmm. And drawing on your experience over all these years helping families struggling with violence, I wonder if we could start by talking about how it is that culture creates the conditions for these kinds of problems in the family.
1: Yeah, well, that's a an issue that people have been struggling with for centuries, it seems. But um, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence, and I think you know our own kind of personal experiences bear out the fact that there's a lot of learned behavior in in particular in in violence in the family. Um, it's something that a lot of people grow up experiencing. It, that does not mean that they are inevitably going to be abusive in their own families. In fact, um, it's sometimes a very protective factor to grow up in a family like that and mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, sort of, at some point in your life, look at that behavior and say, I'm I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. You know, like someone who grows up with a smoker and decides that they're never going to smoke. The same kind of thing certainly happens with certain people. And I think that, I mean, maybe we can connect back to that again at some point, but that kind of uh, adaptive and protective um, behavior is something that I've been very interested in for a long time. You know, what is it that allows some people to um, change those patterns versus other people um, not being able to change those patterns. Um, the, so, so a lot of what happens with um, people who become abusive to their children or to their partners um, is that it's something that they've witnessed or experienced directly growing up in their family. With domestic violence, uh, something you know that we see often happening by men towards women although not exclusively it does have a lot of uh, attitudinal kind of pieces that are connected to it and the more the more a person feels that there are very rigid and strict gender roles the more likely they are to use violence as a way of controlling the other gender. So Mm -hmm. um, people that grow up with a sense that, you know, a woman's place is X, Y, and Z, and they should only behave in such and such a way and should only be allowed to do certain things. Those are, those are um, people that are going to be more, more comfortable with using forms of control and violence to uh, keep their partner in, in what they consider in line um, Mm -hmm. to do things that they want. The, you know, the added piece of that is are Religion and and culture that really often feed into those uh, values, those sort of patriarchal values and those gendered values, and so um, sometimes you find that people who have very traditional religious beliefs can also find themselves sliding over into abusive behavior because the um, it, those values allow one person in a family the head of the family to um, be the person that's in control and when someone is allowed to have control they are also given a lot of license in terms of what kinds of behaviors they use to keep control and uh, there's a lot of turning the other you know cheek or allowance of um, abusive behavior long as it doesn't cross certain lines and so a lot of families are um, are acculturated to the idea that that uh, there's going to be someone in the family who uses coercive control or violence to keep other people in line, and um, again, I think our faith traditions and uh, certain kind of ethnic and cultural values support that.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: So it can get very, very it can get very uh, pervasive and very deep and very accepted in in certain cultures, and there're always there're always antidotes to that in a culture or a faith, but um, often those aren't the primary, uh, you know, sort of values that get um, taught. Or, you know, people will say, well, love thy neighbor as thyself, but, um, you know, the devil's in the details. And so, you know, what actually happens in someone's home can be very different um, than that.
0: You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about that. The, And I wonder about this, that there seem to be in some of these families, two strands going on. There's a Uh, a strand within the family culture in which someone, as you said, has a learned behavior in which they believe that this kind of response is okay. And then there is, outside of the family, there's some culture that in which it's not okay. Generally, people understand that Domestic violence is not okay. Right. In your experience, how do people uh, understand that disconnect or that tension between mm-hmm. the culture that they have inside their family and mm-hmm. the macro culture?
1: Well, that that exact tension is what Connect was was created around. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to necessarily jump to to that, but I think it's it's relevant because I felt the same sort of dilemma really Um, as a nation as a community we don't really advocate violence as a way of solving disputes <laughs> right um, you know it, it's not part of our national myth It's not really part of anyone's national myth um, you can go anywhere in the world and people are going to say peace is better than violence and harmony is better than discord you know you're gonna those right. values always trump the um, values of, of discord and disagreement and, and violence and yet you know, just look around the world and, and see what you see. So so how is it that people come to terms with that, that contradiction? So what we did at Connect, which was very pioneering, really, yeah. was that we decided to ask people that question and uh, not to ask them in a way that was off-putting or negative, but to uh, really engage in a... a a vast series of street surveying and door-to-door surveying um, of regular community members in uh, central brooklyn is where we started um, flatbush uh, which is a very diverse community in new york city Mm. and uh, we we really just uh, trained a lot of community residents in using the survey that we had developed to try to understand what people thought about uh, violence against women and violence against children, how they thought it was best dealt with, what they knew about how how to deal with it, and um, what whether they were interested in kind of becoming part of a a movement to change uh, the levels of domestic violence and child abuse in their community. And what we found, was a really high community intolerance for domestic violence and child abuse. Like 96%, I don't have the study in front of me, but a huge number of people in the community said, we don't believe this is a good thing. We believe that you know, uh, families should be violence-free, basically, whether you're talking about the abuse of women or the abuse of children. Um, then we found out that they didn't really know what to do about it like if their neighbor or sister or mother or themselves were experiencing violence the only thing they knew to do was to call the police or to call the child welfare system and both of those systems we also had questions about sort of social efficacy in terms of those systems and people rated those to service delivery systems, if you want to call them that, very low. They didn't like them. They didn't want them in their homes. They didn't want them in their communities unless absolutely necessary. So they were very resistant to reaching out to the 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 support services that were, that everyone would say, oh, well, just call the police or just call child welfare or just go to shelter. Those were the three things we asked them about. And they didn't like those as Alternatives for helping people. So they felt that they didn't have anything that they could offer or that they could do. So this really launched Connect in the direction that I was hoping it would go, which was about building on that community intolerance for violence, building on the community desire to do things for, you know, to help families in that condition and to prevent it and to build local community resources and awareness that would kind of overcome the resistance to using those three, you know, very um, institutionalized service delivery systems. So the creation of very local, very grassroots um, campaigns and services that could be used by people in the communities. And what we found is that small community-based organizations were very interested in participating in this. And within a year or so, we had about 140 com- small community groups who were interested in um, partnering with us. And we were able to create a very rich array of, again, very community-based grassroots services and awareness campaigns that uh, work to really build on the communities. Interest in uh, seeing families be safe.
0: So, can you give us an example of the nitty gritty of that work? I'm imagining a situation where you have a family that is suffering from some kind of domestic violence or child abuse, and perhaps they're in or near one of these community based organizations that is partnering with Connect. Mm -hmm. How do they come into contact with that service and experience transformation from? work that you were doing?
1: Well, a lot of what we did uh, was around kind of awareness campaigns. Mm. So we we developed a whole network of what we were calling bystander campaigns. Um, Mm. So we were using community residents as literally models for posters, for focus groups, for the language that would be printed on the poster you know superimposed on the on the image of the community resident um, as a way of kind of talking to the community directly from people who were known in the community about um, this this problem either identifying the problem or identifying um, potential solutions within the community for it. Uh, and so that was one piece of, of what we did. The other was that we really created kind of um, a very large network of self-help kind of groups. Mm, okay. um, and the way we did that was that we started um, a training institute where we recruited, again, normal citizens in the community who were had a high level of interest in this issue. Right. And we uh, provided them with about 40 hours of education around um, domestic violence, child abuse, and um, and battering so that they were kind of equipped to go back into the community and do something concrete. So they were like the Peace Corps, kind of, I guess wow. you could look at them. And they went back into their buildings or their jobs or their churches or their mosques or their, their schools, wherever they felt most empowered and comfortable to do this, and started something. And sometimes it was just that they made everybody aware in their um, building that their apartment was like a safe apartment, and you could come in there and talk about this all the time. Or they started a kind of – they did – some people sort of took this survey idea and modeled it in their own communities, so some people did that surveying in their church or in their school to kind of create – an even more drilled down local kind of awareness campaign or right. or a built buy in about what kind of strategies were going to be used. We actually did a lot of work in the faith community in this neighborhood, partly because of my background and interest in that, but also because people in that community and many communities really look to their faith leaders for leadership on all right. sorts of issues. And we felt that if we were going to really have any traction in the community, we were going to have to get the faith leaders to participate, you know, play, play in our sandbox or vice versa, you know, play in there. So right. we did a lot of um, work with them to build that kind of local leadership. The other thing we did was that we raised money to regrant to local community groups. So um, we had about, $100,000 that um, I'd raised, and we created a very user-friendly community-based RFP for groups to apply for small amounts of money to implement uh, programs that they wanted to do in their own community. So we made that available to people in general, but to particularly to people who had been through our training institute so that they could kind of use it sort of as a seed fund to get something going in their community. Um, a lot of that, that community is a very it's a community full of new immigrants, mm-hmm. and um, we noticed that a lot of immigrants were using libraries as a place to both uh, learn English. There were a lot of ESL classes in libraries, a lot of newspapers and journals from their home country. So people would go in to kind of stay connected to news in their in their home country. So men, women, and children were going to libraries. Um, and we use libraries also as a real locus of change in the community. And both um, the ESL classes, um, kids librarians, and uh and And others in libraries became real champions of of this work in in particular in Brooklyn.
0: Were there support groups created for people that had been actually perhaps batterers or people yeah. that, mm-hmm. it, yeah. you talk a little bit about that. I would be interested. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, okay. So here we go back to another sort of protective factor sort of mm-hmm. um issue. On the one hand, you have to kind of understand that the world of batterer intervention, in particular in New York State, which is, I mean, Connect is in New York City, Mm -hmm. but also in in many places around the country are totally and completely tied to the criminal justice system. Right. So the only way in to a batterer's intervention program in many places around the United States is is through an arrest. Wow. Hmm. So you can imagine that if in the lifespan of a domestically violent relationship, there's an arrest at you know age
0: 38 (laughs) right there's been a lot of things gone on
1: a lot of water under that bridge already Um, and um, so just on a theoretical level look at prevention look at awareness look at consciousness change you have maybe a a decade or two of of um, trouble (laughs) before you've even entered that system and you've entered it in a way that's non-voluntary, uh, so you don't have people who go, oh, gee, I really want to change. I really want to do something about this problem. What you have are people that have been uh, taken into custody by someone, and they say, well, you're either going to go to jail for six months, or you can go to this batterers program. So guess what the motivation level <laughs> right. is there. It's not <laughs> particularly low. high. Yeah. Um, so that's a really powerful structural problem, in my opinion, with um, batterers programs. Um, the the other problem is that a lot of them are very behavior mod um, focused. And what this means is that, you know, people are trying to teach other people to count to 10 and all these kinds of, you know, I'm not saying they're not helpful strategies, but they're really not um, Even approaching kind of root cause um, or some of the fundamental issues that are, you know, underlie this this problem. Um, So now switch to another oral history project I did. um, Again, because I was. Really frustrated with the batter's intervention model mm-hmm. of being criminal justice focused, and um, also the frustration with it being this uh, very behavior-oriented uh, kind of uh, curriculum. Um, so I did an oral I did an oral history project with men who had grown up in violent homes but were not violent as adults um, to try to understand from them what un, what what was it, you know, what helped them, allowed them, encouraged them to not, you know, follow in this same pattern that they'd been exposed to, taught by, you know, their their family of, of birth. And um what I found out was that all of them, and some of them had grown up in ridiculously violent situations. Um were that they had a a highly positive and empathic relationship with a woman in their life. And it was sometimes their mother, but sometimes it was an an aunt or um, another adult woman who had been a in and around their family a lot. Fascinating. Um, That's really
0: fascinating. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was really, really fascinating. I mean, I had no idea, you know, sort of when I walked into these, this, this interview process that that would be um, such a core common theme in their stories. And um, so Connect ended up developing a um, batterers intervention framework that really focused on Two things, really, that trying to get people to think about women with with empathy, really, I mean, to right. kind of focus on, on what we're even talking about today, but also to um, try to help men, adult men, remember what the experience of being a child was like in these abusive relationships, because they're... There was a time in all of their lives when they were horrified, freaked out, and protective of their mother um, in these situations. And what happens to some uh, children is that they, at some point along the way, decide that it's it's better to identify with the abuser than with the victim.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, and so this process goes and and sometimes that that's that's very much taught by the father you know grow up stop crying be a man what are you a girl you know all these kind of insults that you can right imagine um you sometimes hear them on the coaching field but um exactly you hear them um a, a lot of these boys were were sort of told to basically buck up um some even brought into the abuse as an abuser at very young ages, you know, right. I mean, literally taught how to be an abuser. Um, so these were two very core issues that we incorporated into a very different model of working with um, men who are abusive. Uh, this sort of empathy towards uh, women and empathy towards themselves as children um, mm-hmm. and trying to get them to kind of reconnect with what that felt like to be at that critical moment in their lives where they chose hmm, to go down the road of perpetrator rather than the road that they saw as, you know, connected to the victim.
0: So that it turns out that one of the key themes among people that have had an experience of domestic violence as a child, but then drawn actually protective influence from that so that when they grow up, they not to be Mm batterers, that the key common theme is that they have had an empathic relationship with a woman. Did you find that that they actually learned some empathy skills out of that relationship? Uh,
1: Absolutely. I mean, they learn to feel instead of feeling, you know, uh, these these divisions are too clean and clear, of course, you know, but instead of feeling um, that she deserved it, they felt like they had no clue why the hell this wonderful person was being treated so badly instead of thinking that they were entitled to be, you know, to, to treat someone else that way. They felt like how could another person treat someone that they care about this way? So, um, and these were boys and young men that would, I mean, sometimes at risk themselves, try to protect their mothers, um, try to help their mothers afterwards in terms of taking care of her so that she would, you know, sometimes their mother was injured. Sometimes she had to go to the hospital. So they would be part of that whole kind of healing process. They would spend long times talking with her. They would strategize escape plans. They would help them, uh, you know, implement escape plans um but basically their connection was much more was much clearer with their with their with their victimized parent than with the when with the victimizer
0: so and then is your intervention then with batterers who maybe Mm -hmm. haven't had that experience Mm -hmm. is to try to have them experience what an empathic relationship is like or attempt to recall at a very young age, an empathic relationship that they had, yes. and relearn it. Is yes.
1: That... Mm-hmm. Because what you what we found when we sort of, I mean, I, it's not like regression therapy or anything right. like that, but when you actually can, and and we used film and we used, you know, novels. I mean, we it was pretty diverse, you know, sort of strategies that we used to try to help um, these guys um, breakthrough really. They're very right. well defended. Um, yeah. You know, sense of self and entitlement.
0: Um, cause they live in a culture that's literally in some cases probably beat this out of them. Absolutely. And you know, so they, they have, yeah. you have to overcome that whole culture in order right. for them to recapture yeah. that experience, which must be.
1: Yeah. I mean, for a lot of these guys that their highest value is respect. Right. That's a word that, that's used all the time for what they really feel like they want. That's what they want. They want respect. Right. And um, that's a very, they have a very rigid understanding of what that really means and what they're allowed to do when they don't get respect. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the batterers program was really about trying to reconnect these guys with this moment because really it's almost like a moment in time where they realized that they were either going to be the victim right a lot of them didn't want to be or they were going to be the victimizer there was kind of no middle ground Mm. and that's not really true there is a middle ground and I think some kids are kind of like oh I don't know which and sometimes I'm this way and sometimes I'm that but you know I think to just be kind of clear and black and white about it right now that's that's a moment in time and you know I think that one of the things that the that the battered women's movement has has tried to make very clear is that for a lot of people domestic violence is a choice. And and I, I think that my experience talking with people over the years really does corroborate that. It's a choice that is undergirded by, you know, personal experience, but but that there are these very significant kind of moments in time during a person's life where they get to decide which fork in the road they're going to go down.
0: Right. I, one of the things that this really connects with in my experience, and I've, I've spoken and written about this, is just the way that adult systems can suppress empathy. It may be that I didn't grow up this way, but then I get in a certain culture, you think of how people learn, for example, on a battlefield to suppress their empathy. Yep. Um, in, a, in any kind of a very violent culture, people learn that, hey, that, that empathetic uh, approach is not going to work. So I need no, to look at right. that. And then it reinforces all of perhaps what could be very violent tendencies. Mm-hmm. So that's really powerful. Just looking at the time, I think rather than continue this, because I would love to, but I would like to transition a little bit into threshold collaborative yeah. and maybe mm-hmm. pick up some of these themes as you talk about threshold the work of threshold collaborative because i'm sure that what you learned in connect is really being put to work in threshold collaborative and so my question is really this we've talked a little bit about the mission but i'd really like to go into the actual services that threshold provides and within our discussion of those services talk a little bit about how you Uh, apply some of these lessons that you learned over so many years working in the field of family violence. So if you could give us that outline of the services that Threshold Collaborative offers, and then we'll take up each one and talk a little bit about it.
1: Sure. Um, Well, what Threshold has really tried to do is sort of take these fundamental insights that were tested in connect and and sort of generalize them for other community challenges. So although we still do work and a fair amount of work in the violence prevention and family violence arena, mm. it it seemed to me that these these the way the methods that connected piloted were really applicable to many other social challenges. Um, mm. And so that's I think one of the Big differences between Connect and Threshold is that we uh, Threshold now works with a lot of other issues, um, and and the other sort of basic um, resonance really uh, between the two is that Threshold is really kind of maintained this idea that that empathy building is the key to uh, sort of self self. Uh, change, you know, Im- improving oneself, uh, connecting with others and making change in your community and that those three building blocks are in, are essential, that you have to understand yourself and be empathetic towards yourself. You have to connect with others um, around, in an empathetic way and that you can then use those um, relationships that you've built to make sustainable changes in your community based on whatever those kind of shared values are. Um, so Threshold has sort of developed this interconnected set of workshops. I mean, there we, we do lots of different things. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes we actually run the initiative. Sometimes we train others to uh, do it. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of both. But So basically, there are three different levels of this, and the first is called transforming stories, which Mm -hmm. is a way of of using narrative and oral history as a way of understanding your own story and where you, what your values are, uh, where some of these sort of a, a sort of mapping process too that goes along with that, so that you sort of look at some of the more significant parts of your life where you've made choices or major transitions to try to unpack those a little bit and and maybe look at them a little bit differently Um, and also understand that we have the power to change our story not and that by that I don't mean fib or lie but what I mean is that tell a different story, tell a new story. Yeah, exactly. We, it is not our fate. Our story is not our fate. And that looking, looking forward, we actually have um, some, some ability to, to control at least what we do in the world. um, And that we can really look at our future differently than, than one might have thought our past was going to uh, condition us to do. And so it's a kind of both self-reflection and empowerment process Um, the next the the story matters uh project has been used a lot in schools but it can be used in any other kind of setting where you're trying to build connections between people who are in some ways diverse um, because the basic idea there is that if we are able to identify when we really meet people as an as um as another, as a valued other, we will always find shared values and things that connect us, mm-hmm. and in particular with people who are identified as being well, you're young, I'm old, you're Jewish, I'm Christian, you know, whatever these divisions are. Um, I'm the teacher, you're the student. There are always ways in which we are more connected than we think, and so the Story Matters project, at its essence, is a way of of finding those core connections and building them, and We've used it in schools a lot as a way of kind of also building leadership and connections to the community from the from the perspective of of students or children. And so it's been used as a way to connect with the larger community in the sense of sort of breaking down the barriers between the school and the community, but also connecting the community with I mean, the, the school with community resources and needs. Um, and it sort of ends up with a, a, a service learning uh, component to it, too, so the that the students are then doing something uh, real and concrete in their community to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Dreamcatcher project is using uh, similar strategies, although some of them are much more... Um, uh larger scale, well there most of them are larger scale to, to do this kind of work in a in a neighborhood or a or a village or a town or a community. Um, and we use a lot of asset mapping and surveying and shorter form uh, narratives that we call five questions in five minutes which is a (laughs) it's sort of like speed dating it's speed narrative where we um, are able to canvas the opinion of a lot of different people and sort of begin to build that sense of cohesiveness and and values that a community shares rather than the things that divide you and then you can right. use that to sort of build you know all sorts of community change initiatives off i'm of.
0: hearing uh, i'm hearing appreciative inquiry yes absolutely yeah.
1: appreciative inquiry is mm-hmm. certainly something that i'm quite familiar with and have incorporated into um, those strategies. Um, And then the disruptive practice is really kind of a little bit of a sideline of mine in a way, but um, in a way not too, because I think one of the things that I really am very troubled by and committed to is this idea that Uh, professionals are know everything (laughs) and that the community is the sort of passive victim of the expertise of professionals. And I (laughs) feel like that is such a core problem in our culture that we have relegated all sort of knowledge about how change occurs to this upper class of people who are really very Often very disconnected from the community, um, yeah. and so uh, disruptive practice is really a way of looking at evaluation and impact from the participant's point of view. So, how to incorporate participant or community member or grassroots voice into the discussion about what works and what doesn't work and why?
0: Right, and you know, it's it's so great to hear you say that. This is something we both share. I find that people are just so often too willing to cede their common sense to these kinds of things. One to me that's uh, astounding is you have this program, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it's called D.A.R.E., you know, the D.A.R.E. <laughs> program, which was about um, basically a drug drug abuse resistance education, I think, and, and right. it's a simple, very simple idea. Send police officers into classrooms to talk about the dangers of using drugs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, this was a very, very you know, widespread program. And somebody did a study that showed that basically, if you compared students that had been in DARE to students that hadn't been in DARE, you couldn't show that DARE really made a meaningful impact on their their drug use. And then 10 years later, of course, when this study came out, it was hugely impactful. And people said, oh, well, we have to stop funding DARE. Then later along, somebody came along and and did another study and showed well lo and behold dare does work in certain mm-hmm. circumstances so but my own reflection on it was we've lost our minds i mean <laughs> if the practice of going and talking to people in order to change their behavior mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't work mm-hmm. yeah. then what are human beings going to do because right. that's that's
1: that's our all we've primary got really <laughs> modality, <laughs> yeah. right you
0: know, of changing people's behavior right. but um, it's a it's a terrific example of exactly what you're saying that it's all somebody has to do is wait around a study and suddenly they become yeah. like God and can tell people that no matter how much they think something works, it doesn't work. Yeah. And it uh, makes very little sense. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this question. So you have Transforming Stories, Story Matters, Dream Catcher, and Disruptive Practice. Mm-hmm. How would you decide which to do with which community?
1: Well, I have to say that um, yeah. in general, the Transforming Stories um, piece has been the most popular with the anti-violence, domestic violence prevention world. It somehow is, it rings, it sort of resonates with them around this idea that, um, you know, kind of telling your story is both healing and transformative. I mean, (laughs) that's something that I think people that come out of the women's movement are sort of comfortable with. I see it as being much more broadly utilizable um, in in so many different ways. Uh, you know, I think a book that you would be interested in is, um, what's his first name? Gilligan is his last name. It's right over here okay. someplace. Um, James Gilligan, um, who is... Carol Gilligan's husband.
0: How about husband? that? Because in, in a different voice, right? That's Carol Yes, Will- exactly. Yeah, right.
1: Well, he was the head of the uh, prison system in the state of Massachusetts, maybe still is. He's a psychiatrist. But one of his, uh, th- this book is all about shame and the powerful, uh, punitive and corrupting kind of uh, impact that shame has on, I think he would say, for the most case because he's focused on men in the prison system but on on boys in terms of their upbringing and and how it kind of leads to this sort of same phenomenon we're talking about of like not being able to connect with other people because of being shamed (laughs) so often Shame
0: is at the root of so much violence yes
1: right um so you know i just feel like there's i mean i guess that's another kind of population of people and and uh that i think that this would be very powerful for. I also think it resonates with people that do anti-racism work. Um, you know, any, anywhere you're really thinking about trying to build bridges between uh, communities that have uh, some difference um, right. that has prevented them from seeing each other as human, <laughs> right. I see it as a very, you know, powerful Uh, set of strategies.
0: So transforming stories, is it fair to say transforming stories is really targeted at at change movements of any kind where we're looking at some set of behaviors and we want to try to move to another set or explore other options? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it sounded to me like Story Matters was perhaps more focused on themes about diversity and conflict. Do I have that right?
1: I think that Story Matters has, to this point, been very focused on uh building connections between one entity and another so in the sense that we've used it so much in schools it's really about creating uh powerful and positive connections between the school and the wider community it could also be used you know with a half halfway house in a community or a mental health facility in the community or um i i because i feel like a police station in the community because i feel like there's something about the institution that is uh, that is that is involved here in terms of making the, the barriers of the walls between those two between the in, inside and outside more permeable and those connections um, to be made.
0: So Just building collaborations among people and and mm-hmm. between institutions and between mm-hmm. institutions and people.
1: Yes and I also the other thing that's been very interesting and I wouldn't have said this at, when I first developed the project, but it really has been a very powerful kind of youth leadership, development piece too so that young people have really kind of taken the have have been able to take a lot of leadership in in that project interesting and so i think that it not only builds this empathy and this sort of cross-sector alliance but it also builds a a kind of voice and leadership with youth and and uh, young people so
0: and Dreamcatcher, would that be more for organizational development or for community development? Is it more future looking? Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's more future-looking. It's sort of really helpful to have an identified challenge that you're trying to resolve. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, you have a high teen pregnancy rate and you want to figure out how to create a kind of a community-wide strategy to address that. You have, uh, you know, a neighborhood where kids are hanging out and doing graffiti and breaking, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It You have... Um, uh, we, we did one once on... Of, uh if you can believe this in an urban area around um community gardening Mm -hmm. it was really cool we because what we were able to sort of see was that the community was filled with uh, new americans and immigrant families who were probably five years out of a farm (laughs) (laughs) and they were living in this incredibly urban area and so we used this idea of um of their connection to farming um, as a way of reclaiming this idea that they might actually be able to do gardening in an urban area and then reflecting that, those findings back to the city Administration saying, you know, there, you know, we mapped the vacant lots. We right. talked about the desire of these of these community members to actually grow their own food. We showed the lack of fresh food in their community, and we had their uh, these sort of broad survey and their their voices in these stories that we did to to give to the town fathers, who then said, okay, well, we'll start you know, they didn't start as many as we'd liked, but they, you know, started four or five community gardens. Wow. So it was, it was great.
0: And now finally, tell me about a little bit more about disruptive practice, like the context for using disruptive practice.
1: Well, the context so far has been very formative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although I have to say that, uh, there is interest. uh, I've been working with the Department of Health and, uh, and the Domestic Violence Coalition and the state of California work very closely together. Mm-hmm. And we have been um, talking about doing a statewide kind of conference, really, with funders, organizations, and state partners around how to incorporate participant voice into the demand that the state and foundations have for impact and evaluation of their programs. So as a way of really rethinking what the demand is going to be from the granting agencies and then how to build the capacity of the grantee organizations to, to do a different kind of impact work. Interesting. And the, the beauty of that is that if it really moves forward, it's not going to be one organization at a time. Mm which of course, you know, is is nice not to have to, you know, go one by one, but this has the kind of leveraged ability to impact, you know, maybe 200 organizations. I mean, they probably won't all do it at the same exact time, but um, it could very well end up having a big impact.
0: So is disruptive, pra- is it fair to say disruptive practice is really about high level innovation or it really impactful innovation when you're doing something you know you've got something that's not working right
1: yes or you yep. really want to change the way I mean one of the things I think because because I've done this like organization by organization you know mm-hmm. an organization that wants to rethink how it measures its impact how it tells its story right so we've sort of done that like as a consulting almost like a consulting partnership with organizations and um, but, you know, the uh, the other piece is, you know, this again is kind of nonprofit capacity building work, but right. a lot of organizations have very visionary missions. Mm-hmm. But when you look at their programming, it's very unvisionary. It's right. very stuck in the mud. It's very um, power over, non-participatory, non-collaborative, um, in fact, not very visionary at all. And... Disruptive practice is a kind of a a, it's a Socratic process almost that um, helps people rethink uh, how could their actual day to day programming be more in line with their visionary mission. And and then and again, that involves, you know, from my perspective, it involves empathy because it involves a kind of empowered, empathic connection with the consumers, participants, clients, whatever, you know, you happen to call them in that organization to become part of the conversation rather than, uh, you know, just passive recipients of whatever it is the organization is providing.
0: Fascinating. So really employing empathy as a tool for reengineering what's going on inside the organization itself. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, again, that that can be very hard because if your funder isn't listening or your funder has a completely different sort of matrix for what you have to to evaluate, which is which is why I'm so happy with the California possibility, because the funders are going to be part of this conversation. And it's hard. I mean, as we all know, it's hard running an organization to both give your funders, of which you usually have 20, <laughs> all the information <laughs> that they are expecting out of you, which you may not even enjoy doing, uh, might feel like a real afterthought, um, and then do something different.
0: Right. Top. Exactly. So exactly. If you,
1: can get the, if you can get the funder to be part of this process and conversation, it, it makes a difference but that's that's not easy
0: uh, yeah because and a lot of times that dialogue with the funder is not transparent so it's very difficult to do that's
1: that
0: so very interesting well this is fascinating I would like to just we're really coming to the end of our time and I mm-hmm. wanted to leave one question for you which is as you are writing the script for the future of this work how do you want to see it unfold and if you could give it to me in two time frames one is say immediately over the next six months and then bigger picture say you know five years what, mm-hmm. what does that look like to you
1: well i think for threshold what we're really uh hoping to do in the next year or so is to make more concrete maybe a toolkit or a curriculum um, of both transforming stories and story matters in particular Dreamcatcher is a bit of a, it's a difficult thing to put into a kind of a package, although, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, whatever about that. I mean, we'd like to start with those other two in particular because I think that there is opportunity and interest in really trying to teach empathy in uh, schools. And I think that we, that's what we're doing um, and to turn it into something that is uh, usable in in the school setting um, that ties into curriculum demands and is something that we can teach people to do. So a train the trainer kind of uh, model mm-hmm. um, that would allow this to kind of be more broadly utilized um, would be that. that's exactly what we'd like to do in the next year or so. And then to also find a way to Uh, Again, using participant involvement to uh, look at the impact of that and and what it does for not only students, but also the uh, adult professionals in a school, but also the school's relationship with their larger community. Mm. Because to us, that's a powerful piece of this. It's not just about in theory, making someone more empathic, but in reality, making the connections between individuals and powerful institutions more, um, more empathic and more positive and more change oriented.
0: Right. We have to look at the culture and the system as well, mm-hmm. the, as well yeah. as the individual. Yeah. Yes,
1: because the systems really dictate how we are allowed, to, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, to sort of interact with one another and, um, yeah. You know, certainly schools have huge amounts of power um, hmm. uh, in in our in our society, and are struggling, I think, with how to enrich what they're doing and and move away. I hope a little bit from this kind of race to the top, test, test, test. Um, the and we have right. sadly uh, been willing to forget about the human connections that are really the most important thing that we. have going for us, as you said before, about you know, if we can't talk to each other
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. we're screwed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. People and, are not people yeah. are not widgets that need to be processed at the yeah, end of the day. It's right. like we are we're, we're we're change agents ourselves. And yes. so if you can't engage the creative spirit that people bring to the bring to a community, then yes. whatever you've done, you've got nothing. Yes.
1: So I think transforming stories yeah. really builds this idea that we are change agents and we can change not only our own path, but the path of our, you know, surrounding family community. And then um, Story Matters really puts that into a, a more a larger, more social context. Um, so I think that those are really a powerful team and that I think uh, should be integrated into this larger effort that's both Ashoka's and, and other people's around building empathy and uh, integrating it into our educational system.
0: Terrific. So that would be the longer term vision of mm-hmm. how you how yeah. it spreads well this has just been such a great conversation Alisa and I know that what we're gonna do is come back in the future and find out how it's all going and incorporate in the new lessons learned so I know this won't be the last time we're talking
1: that's the truth
0: our guest today has been Alisa del Tufo thank you so much it's been a great pleasure speaking with you
1: thank you David again you're a great interviewer it's been fabulous to talk
0: on behalf of our producers and sponsors Arch street press Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, visit us at archstreetpress.org.